Henry and Thelma Showalter were a part of that church. Henry was in the service. And they had moved to Anchorage with their small children. They were the kind of people that loved God, loved the church, loved the work of God, and sacrificed for it. Thelma began to teach the women of the church in Anchorage how to decorate cakes. And that branched out into a cake decorating school that was operated out of the church. And it funded the original building there at 3740 DeBar. Henry was not a minister, but he instilled something. And all three of his boys, Mike, David, and even that one that went through some bad years, even into Monty Showalter. I was telling Monty that uh, I am indebted to the Showalter family because that uh, same couple loaded up a whole bunch of young people drove halfway across the United States to take them to a Bible college. And one of them was Willow. They invited me to go for a ride to the Lloyd Center, which was at that time the largest shopping center in the world. It was before West Edmonton Mall. And I got to ride in the back of the van next to the spare tire. But sitting up in the seats, up a few rows, was Willow. So I, I'm indebted. And I am indebted to this man for his ministry. I remember <coughs> many times that Monty has spoke to my heart, and I know that he will, pardon me, Brother Showalter has spoken to my heart, and he will do that for you today. Praise God. Amen. Thank you so much, Brother Yaden, and... Uh, my brothers made sure I greet you for them. And someday I hope they get up here and get to do what I do. <laughs> Enjoy this beautiful state that you live in. And uh, boy, just memories flood back in my mind all the time. Uh, and uh, just, just being in places that I remember as a boy. And then... Uh, this dear couple sitting over here, the Blackshears, well, it, I, we were here before they had met. But that little lady, Sister Betty Smith, she was the first Sunday school teacher that I remember. Amen. And, uh, and I thank God for her. I thank God for people who have given their lives. Amen. And then 
Then just shortly after we left, they got together. They even came through, I think it was their honeymoon trip, and came through our house in Omaha. <laughs> Amen. And we fell in love with this couple, and then I was evangelizing. He invited me to Madison, Wisconsin to preach a revival, and I never made it because before I got there, he moved back to Alaska. And so... Uh, he invited us to come, and in 1977 and 78, we spent uh, a full five months, maybe a little longer, up here evangelizing, and uh, it was just, it was a wonderful uh, time, some of our greatest memories, and so as missionaries, we have, in, we've invited ourselves, as, as Brother Parrish said, Amen, because uh, we, we request Alaska every deputation. We don't always get it, but I think five out of six we've had it. <laughs> Amen. And uh, we just, we, we love this state, appreciate all of you, appreciate the leadership that this state has experienced over the years. Great, great people, like Brother French. What a missionary. Thank God for that great man. When we moved here, the Corrins were here. And uh, soon, because of some health issues, they moved back to, to the U.S., the lower 48. And uh, this wasn't U.S., it was just territory back then. And, um, and then their daughter, Sister Agnes Rich, and her husband moved to take the work in Anchorage and their... Uh, we, we fell in love with the Rich family. Later on, my folks actually helped her start a church in Grand Island, Nebraska. And uh, I was that wayward young person during that time. She had to cast the devil out of me, and that's, that's literally. And I thank God for our years right here. Amen. What a, what a, how blessed you are, folks. How blessed you are. Well, we have, it just, lots of paths that cross. I met Mitch Glover at, uh, down in Portland, Oregon, Conquers Bible College. Amen. And uh, what a great friend they have been. And you, you've been blessed. And then this week, it's already been a blessing. Wow, what a tremendous lesson Brother Sistrunk taught this morning. And I, I'll say it this way, while Sister, Sister Blackshear was my Sunday school teacher, well, my wife was Brother Sistrunk's Sunday school teacher. <laughs> Amen. Praise God. But what, what great folks God has placed in this district. And the parishes are just wonderful, wonderful leaders. God has blessed you with great leadership, folks. Amen. All the way through, all the way through. And, and then, of course, Brother Stuart Churchill. Wow, did he ever preach today. Now, Brother Crumpacker, he did not preach like somebody wanting to retire. He preached like a young man. He couldn't even stay on the carpet. <laughs> I'm telling you. 
what a what a tremendous message. And uh, years back, we met the Bradberries in Huna. <laughs> Got to spend a couple weeks there, enjoyed ourselves, and over the years, these have been wonderful, wonderful people of God, friends, and and God is doing a great work, and we're going to finally make Bethel. Amen. You folks from Bethel, we're going to show up on your doorstep Sunday. Amen. Praise God. And, uh, of course, here's Brother Cox. Now, we go back. He was still in high school. I was in my second year of Bible school, and, uh, and his dad was pastor. We got to be in in church with him way back, and uh, what a great young man he is, still is young, doesn't look any different. Now, I've got a story about Brother Cox, and I can tell it because it's, uh, he's got one about me too, <laughs> told the other night, but now this guy, this, he is one of the, he is just one of the gentlest people that you'd ever know, just the kindest Christian, and I mean that. He is a Christian through and through. But some people kind of think he's just a big teddy bear, and, and he's that way. But this boy is strong. He used to deadlift in school. And they came to El Salvador to, to, to preach, him and his brother-in-law. And we went one night, we had a night off, so we went down to, to, to goof around in one of those amusement parks downtown. And... and uh, there was a little car pulled up. I don't remember what it was. It was just a, it was a little Hyundai or something, and and they had a flat tire and didn't have a jack. And Brother Cox, believe it or not, he said, "You guys get ready." He went and lifted the back of that car up while they and held it there while they changed the tire. That is the truth. That is the truth. Oh, my, what a great friend. And then uh, while we were, well, he, had, he just had a love for our kids. He invited my son to come to his house. I think they must have been about 13, 14. And um, he just happened to have a niece that was staying there as well. And they were, they were young teenagers, but they met. And uh, later on, of about 10 years later, they married and have provided me with five grandchildren. <laughs> Amen. So we're just almost in-laws. <laughs> that's Uncle Kevin to my kids. Amen. And uh, that, that's a great, great folks. Praise God. And uh, you're, we're looking forward to seeing the Judds here tomorrow or maybe they'll show up tonight, but you'll be blessed by, by Brother Steve Judd, tremendous people, and uh, they oversee ministry of Tupelo Children's Mansion. Well, we have, some, we have some paths that cross there too, because Sister Irma Judd introduced me to my wife. I'm telling you, I'm, go, I'm just having a time here in Alaska. <laughs> Amen. Amen. And uh, what a joy. We love, we love you so much. We love the Yadens. I got to be with him just uh, a couple years back. 
and uh, preach a Spanish revival in, in Whitehorse, Yukon. That was a shock to me. I didn't know they'd go that far north. <laughs> Amen. It's cold. <laughs> Amen. But we had a great time. Amen. And we love, we love the Yadens. Praise God. Well, I was so overwhelmed, Brother Churchill's message on, you better be careful about criticizing your, your God. You know, he's, he's our heavenly father. We need to honor our father and mother, for it's the first command with promise. Amen. It will give you long life. The second part of that promise, what I want to talk a little bit about today, and that is our mother. The church is our mother. And I, I, I just, I'm, I guess I'm a little old-fashioned, but I don't believe you can be saved without a mother. You can't be born again just by a father. You also need a mother involved in the process. You need a church. You need a local church. Amen. You need a pastor. Amen. And, and, uh, and thank God we belong to a church. Thank God for an organization as well. And I know organization is not perfect because I'm in it. But I can promise you, don't allow people to criticize your mother. You just, you just stop their mouths because when they start criticizing the UPC for whatever they, they, they think, they're criticizing my mother. And those are fighting words. I don't know what neighborhood you came from, but in my neighborhood, when you talked against your mother, that was fighting words. <laughs> in fact, amen. Well, Paul says to us in Galatians 4 and 26, he says just that. And he says that Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. And I want you to know, our roots do not go to Rome. We are not part of the Protestant movement. We are, we are part of the Jerusalem church. Our, when we say apostolic, sometimes that's misunderstood in the church world. That, that term is used in a variety of ways. When you say that to a Catholic, that means that they, they use the term apostolic because they believe they have apostolic secession which in their minds or in their doctrine is authority to say whatever they want to say and believe whatever they want to believe. Making the Pope infallible. And they, they, don't, they don't interpret their doctrine from the Scripture. They interpret it from their traditions. It's called the magisterium of the church. And it goes back to Rome. But you see, we're not of those roots. Our, when we say apostolic, we're talking about what the apostles taught. And we don't believe that being apostolic gives us authority to change that. We believe that gives us the, the, the admonition of the scripture to build on that foundation. And, and it's already laid and don't change it, amen. But stand firm on it. Praise God. Jerusalem is the mother of us all. So 
We're not anti-Trinitarian. We're pre-Trinitarian. We predate that doctrine 300 years. Amen. And we don't believe that we have the right, according to the Scripture, to add to or take away from what has been founded right here in the Word. Praise God. And so, under that admonition, we call ourselves apostolic. We preach the apostles' doctrine. And I can tell you, now we are missionaries. We've been missionaries for 28 years. And, uh, and we, we, but we are kind of strange critters because 18 years ago they asked me to leave the field that we were working in. I was president of the work in Guatemala and they asked me to serve as a missionary evangelist interregionally that we travel everywhere in the world and work in every region. And so we never unpack. We live in a suitcase, <laughs> so to speak. But I can tell you that uh, this gospel, it works everywhere. It works among any language group. You don't have to change it. And exactly how Peter answered on the day of Pentecost still works. Men and brethren, what should we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Wow, what a comfort that is. I don't have to bisect it. I don't have to trisect it. All I've got to do is answer with the word. Praise God. Jerusalem is my mother. Amen. And we take our roots all the way back. Jesus said that he came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. So many people don't understand that. The fulfillment of the law. And how he, he, he gives us, what that literally means is that he gives us the spiritual aspect and the spiritual nature of the law. It was our schoolmaster. It was a shadow. It wasn't the true tabernacle. It was a replica and a model on earth, a physical model of the true spiritual tabernacle in the heavens. And so Jesus came to give us the real tabernacle. He's the true high priest. His blood is the blood of the new covenant. It's the one that, that gives us remission of sins. Praise God. And so, you know, a lot of talk today, some people avoid the law. You know, oh, don't, don't any kind of laws, any kind of regulation. They say, oh, don't, 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 don't preach. Oh, that's the Old Testament. That's law. We're not under law, but under grace. Boy, they need to read Titus about grace, don't they? <laughs> the word iniquity, the word iniquity in the Scripture that word means without law. Sometimes in newer translations, it's translated lawless or lawlessness. Without law. And there is a spirit of iniquity that seemingly wants to abound, and that's the spirit of lawlessness. And so those people that come and say, oh, we're not under the law. Mark them. 
Amen. Because we need some laws. We need some, you know, right out there on the highway. You want to be lawless, you'll soon have trouble. Not just the little red lights. You'll end up in a ditch somewhere. But thank God for the law, the fulfillment of the law. Then you have other people trying to go back to the Old Testament law, trying to keep the Sabbath and all of that, and they miss the whole thing. The fulfillment of the Sabbath was the Holy Ghost. Isaiah said, this is the rest. This is the rest. And thank God, if, if the, keeping the Sabbath was the rest, then Paul, or whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, I believe it was Paul, speculated that it was him in the fourth chapter he said they didn't enter into the rest but they were keeping the sabbath what rest was that it was the rest of the holy ghost amen thank god thank god for this wonderful church that we can be a part of great fellowship it's god's church in the earth folks it's time that we recognize God has given us a mandate in this hour to reveal to this world who he is and what the way is that they need to walk in. You live it before them by example, but somehow I'm praying that God grants us a boldness to not be intimidated by those voices that try to intimidate us or put us down. Amen. For whatever reason, I'm telling you that what you have is what the world is looking for. Uh, can, I, can, I, can I let you in on just a, it's not a secret, but maybe it is to you. Right now, there is a, there is a revival going through the Muslim world. And it is happening so powerfully that... Uh, the articles, we have spent some good time in the last couple years in the Islamic world, almost totally in the Islamic world in several countries. And I can tell you there is a revival going on there. God is doing something that it's him. It's illegal to witness to them, but he is revealing himself to them through visions and dreams and through angelic appearances like happened to Cornelius in the 10th chapter of Acts. And in several occasions, Jesus is appearing to them just like he did on the road to Damascus to Saul of Tarsus. Amen. Now, we have been asking people to pray specifically for ISIS. And pray, you know... Don't just attack them with your prayers. Pray God reveal himself to them. They have raised up, reading articles from them, they have raised up violently in this hour as a force to try to intimidate and stop, in their words, to stop the massive conversions to Christianity from Islam. And, but... We're praying that God reveals himself to them. I just got testimony, amen, just a couple weeks ago that one of the main leaders of ISIS, we've been asking people to pray for the leadership of that, that ungodly movement and pray that Jesus reveals himself to them and that's just what happened. One of those martyrs, 
holding his Bible and they were trying to get him to recant. And he said, I, no, I won't, but I want to give you something. They were shocked. And he handed that man who took his life his Bible. And from that point on, he started having visions and dreams. And a man in white appeared to him. And eventually he asked him, what is your name? And he told him, I am Jesus. <laughs> Praise God. I'm going to tell you what happens. They immediately, when that happens, they recognize fully who Jesus is. They believe in one God, and when he shows up and tells them his name, they leave it all behind. Praise God. Praise God. Oh, friend of mine, I believe this world needs, they don't need another religion or another branch of Christianity. They need to see Jesus. Amen. In fact, all around the world, I, you know, some people they have, they have, when you say Christian, in fact, that can be misunderstood. Because you all of a sudden are lumped with Rome and all of its terrible happenings down through history. But we don't belong to that. Amen. And we belong to the Jesus church, if we could say it that way. We're followers of Jesus. He is our God. Praise God and the captain of our salvation. And what this world needs to see is Jesus. And that will turn them around. They don't have problems with Jesus. In fact, the Quran, it, it only speaks of Muhammad four times, but the, the Quran speaks of Jesus over 80 times. And it calls him exactly what your Bible calls him, the son of a virgin. Amen. That he, he was born of a virgin. He was, he was born of the Holy Ghost. Amen. And uh, he is the word of God in flesh. Over and over again you find the same thing declared in the Quran. It's, it's a shame they don't under, understand their own book. And in the end it tells them to obey his words. I'm telling you that Muhammad talked about a group of people that would be in the end down through history but particularly in the end time and he talked about these people as people who believed in one God they would be they would be followers of Jesus and that they believed in one God they weren't confused in other words by the doctrine of the Trinity they believed in one God they lived according to the word and according to the book, a holy life. And he taught his followers to respect those people, to even take care of them in times of persecution. And he calls them, well, I'll just say it outright, he calls you because what he describes is you. He calls you the people of the book. The people of the book. I'm here to tell you, folks, amen, we don't need to back up. We don't need to change. We just need, we need to get ready. You need to get, a, you need to get skillful in teaching a Bible study of explaining to people how they can be saved.
You need to get ready. Amen. Because when things come shaking down, they're not going to go to the flakes and the fruits and the nuts. They're going to go to folks who know their God. Who know Him by name. And walk with Him daily. Praise God. Praise God. And so I believe that we need to share this wonderful knowledge of the Lord Jesus like never before. Amen. Some people think it doesn't make a difference. Oh, yes, it does. Praise God. We're going to look in John chapter 7. And I, I want to share something with you about this wonderful truth. Sometimes we miss some things from our Western understanding of the Scripture and even our English translation. I use King James about half the time because I preach in Spanish the other half. And I use the Reina Valera. Quien dice Gloria a Dios? Amen. Amen. And, uh, and so, actually, the, the Reina Valera is, is, a, is a translation that it's so close to the Greek and even the Hebrew, it, it, it's a much better translation. But then when you get into studying some of the things from a Jewish perspective, from, from what they understood, we miss some things in the Scripture. And I just want to give you a little insight today, and we're going to go to John chapter 7 and, uh, and talk about what Jesus said when he proclaimed. John 30, 7, 37. Let's stand. 7, 37. You understand. I mean, you know this passage. It says, in the last day, the great day of the feast... Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Now, the setting here is the Feast of Tabernacles. We look at the beginning of this chapter. Jesus was back in Galilee. He had left Judea because the Jews had plotted his death the last time he was in Jerusalem. And so he decided, he knew it was not his time yet. And so he left and he was staying, ministering in Galilee. And Jesus did some miracles that gave undoubted proof in who he was and uh, in Galilee. And so they clearly understood who he was, that he was Messiah. He was the one that which is to come. And uh, John, I don't know whether it was John doubting or John trying to direct his final disciples to Jesus, but we find that he, he had sent, he was in prison. John the Baptist was in prison. And he, he sent his final two disciples that were loyal to him to go ask Jesus a question. And they asked him, Art thou he that should come, or should we look for another? 
And so that was the question. And when they asked Jesus, this is Matthew 11, he told them, you know, just go back and tell John. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 35, verse 4 and 5. And uh, verse 5 tells them, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Go tell John what you see and hear. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The deaf ears shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart and the tongue of the dung sing. For the wilderness shall break, waters break out and streams in the desert. One of the identifying signs of Messiah, and all of Israel seemed to understand this, because nowhere in the Old Testament was there anyone ever healed of blindness. There were never blind eyes opened. But you find that Jesus used this as a messianic sign to send back to John because this prophecy in Isaiah 35 was a declaration of what, I, what Messiah would do. And so it was a very clarifying sign that the one that would open the eyes of the blind would be the Messiah. Jesus had just done this in Galilee, amen, and his fame spread even greater, and they were proclaiming him to be the very one. And so John uh, sent his final disciples to, to ask that question. We find then Jesus staying in Galilee, saying he wasn't going to go back because it wasn't his time yet, and, and so his brothers, the Feast of the Tabernacle came, and now in the in the Israeli year, there were, there were seven feasts that they were to keep. It was God's calendar to them. And three of those feasts were considered main feasts that they were to go and appear in Jerusalem for. And uh, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Passover and Pentecost are in the spring of the year. Tabernacles is in the fall of the year. And uh, these are harvest feasts. And it was the Feast of the Tabernacles, and so his brethren, his very half-brothers, the other sons of Mary and, and Joseph, half-brothers of Jesus, said to him in verse 3 of 7, he said, you know, depart hence and go into Judea that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. So his doubtful brothers were challenging him, almost mocking him, and saying, why don't you go down to Jerusalem and do these things? Reveal yourself down there if you are who you say you are and who these people proclaim. And so Jesus responded, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. Go ye up to the feast, I go not up yet unto the feast, for my time is not yet full come. And so Jesus delayed his going telling his brothers to go on to the feast. They usually traveled as a family. And, uh, and he showed up. He did. I think he got convicted. 
I kind of hear echoes of what he was telling his mom at the marriage of Canaan here. Of Cana when, when she said, you know, they need some wine. They ran out. And Jesus said, it's not my time yet. And his mom just kind of turned to the servants and said, do what he says. <laughs> and I, I, I kind of hear this same thing. His brother's, you know, taunting him. And he said, not my time yet. And they go on down to the feast. But who shows up halfway into it? Jesus. And he does not sneak in. Though they didn't know where he was. When he got there, he showed up right in the temple on the steps teaching and preaching, declaring his identity. And he goes into a series of messianic revelations of his identity for the next five chapters. All revealing who he was to Jerusalem that they would not have a doubt. Chapter 8, Brother uh, Churchill referred to it today that he began to proclaim himself as the I am. I mean, four times he said it in that chapter. In fact, he said before Abraham was, I am. Except you believe that I am he, you'll die in your sins. And he makes that reference, and it was clear. It was very clear what he was proclaiming because they took up stones to stone him right there. But I can tell you that Jesus took this situation boldly. He answered the taunting of his brothers clearly. And one of those places right here in chapter 7 is happening where we read verse 37 through 39. And I want to give you insight to really what was going on here. First off, it was the last day. The great day of the feast. Now Jesus had been teaching in the temple over and over again. And they were, they were, they were shocked at his teaching. And uh, one point they sent soldiers out to arrest him. And they couldn't. Said nobody teaches like this man. Boy, what a, what a God you can be proud of. Amen. But here he is on the last day, the great day of the feast. Now what they were doing on the last day, there's a certain ceremony that they perform. The priest would take a golden pitcher. It represented that Ark of the Covenant that Brother Churchill was talking about. It represented the Ark of the Covenant. And they would carry it through the streets of Jerusalem and they would go to the Pool of Siloam. And they would dip water from that pool and... With a procession, they would go back through the streets to the temple as the people sang what is called the Hallel, the first part of the word Hallelujah. It's Psalms 113 through Psalms 118. It's, it's the most common section of hymns that they sing because they sing it at every feast in the home at Passover. Everyone knows it. It's memorized. So you find those words quoted in the New Testament, in the Gospels, on several occasions. What they're quoting is the Scripture, the very Psalms that were Messianic prophecies concerning Him. But as they marched through the streets with the water from the Pool of Siloam, 
They would return to the temple where the sacrifice was prepared and there they would pour the water out over the sacrifice before it was consumed in remembrance of Elijah on Carmel withstanding 850 false prophets. Now why the pool of Siloam? That's rather interesting to begin with because the pool of Siloam has quite a history. It was 714 B.C. under the threats of Sennacherib in Assyria after he had taken Samaria and the northern tribe, the northern kingdom of Israel that he marched on Jerusalem threatening to take them and standing, you can read it in 2 Chronicles 32 and uh, he's threatening them, his messenger is proclaiming what they're going to do to those people wipe out Jerusalem, they might as well surrender and where he is standing, he's standing over the main water source of the city of Jerusalem called the Fount of Gihon and you see in those days they had fortified cities, great walls Jerusalem was a well known fortified city, almost impossible to penetrate but their style of warfare was, was by siege they would surround the cities and starve them out. But Jerusalem was so well fortified and they had granaries of food storage that lasted seven years for their inhabitants. So it was going to be a long siege. Except you could call it a dry city. They had no water source within the walls. Cisterns? They had cisterns, but they only had three months of water supply for the inhabitants. And Sennacherib knew the weakness of that city. And there they stood over the water source saying, we're going to, we're going to cause you to tell that your tongues cleave to the roof of your mouth. You'll die of thirst. You might as well surrender. And, and King Hezekiah got a plan in his mind and when Sennacherib and his armies left they didn't know it but Sennacherib never returned his own sons killed him when he returned to, to Nineveh and, uh, and, but Hezekiah got two teams together and they excavated a tunnel through solid bedrock for 540 meters from that Virgin's Fount, it's commonly called, the Fount of Gihon, underneath the walls of the city of Jerusalem, two teams working day and night without GPS, they met in the middle. And you can walk through that. I've been there. I've walked in that tunnel. And they brought that water under the wall and made what is known still today as the Pool of Siloam. Now, Siloam is translated to us from the Greek New Testament, but the word in Hebrew is found in Genesis 49, and it's the word Shiloh, which is, means one cent. It is a messianic title. When Jacob spoke to Judah and said, the scepter will not pass from Judah until Shiloh comes. And so it was a messianic term. It was a, it was a title of Messiah. And so here is the pool of Messiah 
that is the water source within the city. It comes from the virgin's fount on the other side of the Kidron Valley. And it comes through solid bedrock that water flows, amen, and opens to the pool of Shiloh. What a picture of Messiah. He was born of a virgin. He is the rock. And the waters are still flowing from that rock. In the pool of Siloam, some 2,700 years later, that water is still flowing. It's never run dry. It's still flowing in the city of Jerusalem. You can drink water from that well still today. But I'm here to tell you, the fountain that was opened in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, when that rock was split open, amen, and poured forth this which you now see and hear, is still flowing. It's still flowing. Woo! Hallelujah. How many have drank from that rock? Oh, I have, I have to go back and take another drink every day. I got to let, let that water flow every day. Praise God. Praise God. And so how powerful is that? That it's from that particular place that they dip the water and carry it through the streets back to the temple, representing the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, the very Spirit of God. And they pour it over that, that uh, sacrifice that's prepared. Now, let's go to the Hallel and look at what they were singing as they made that procession. Now, we don't have time to go through all of those psalms, but we'll go to the last one, Psalms 118. And, and if you would like to turn there, we'll start at verse 14. What a, what a beautiful section of Psalms. It's full of many messianic prophecies. But Psalms 118, there's so many here. It says in verse 14, The Lord is my strength and my song and has become my salvation. Now, the word that is translated, transliterated out here in this verse is become my salvation is actually a Hebrew word. It's a proper name. It's the name Yeshua. Sometimes translated salvation, but you see in, in Jewish context, you cannot have salvation outside of God. So it's more than the, than the name Osea, salvation or savior, but it's got the, got the name of God, Yah, added to it. And in proper Hebrew, it's Yehoshua, which is the name of Joshua in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's the name Jesus. But over and over in the text, we find it in its Aramaic form, in the Hebrew text. And it's transliterated out by the translators. I think it comes from the Jewish translators. The Masorites, they didn't want to write the name in the text. Because it was too revealing. Too identifying. And so they would write out, God has become our Savior. 
or God has become our salvation, or He has become our salvation. Because Yah or Yahweh means He is. And so, and so here it is. This is literally what, if you, if, if you ever get a chance to get a Hebrew names version, read it. It's in there. It says, the Lord is my strength, or Yahweh is my strength, and my song, and is my Yeshua. Praise God. The voice of rejoicing and Yeshua is in the tabernacles of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. So the very name of Jesus is in the Hebrew text. In fact, it's in there some 35 times in formal, proper name form. And it's found another 30 times still in that name, but not in proper name form. But they're all linked to messianic prophecies declaring hundreds of years before the very name that the Messiah would carry. It not only identifies their God, it identifies, amen, the Messiah in the name of their God. Jesus said, I'm come in my Father's name. Praise God. He said, I've come to manifest thy name to those that you've given me. Aren't you glad you know his name? Aren't you glad you know that the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost is one name, which is the name above every name. It is the only name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Amen. The voice of rejoicing and Yeshua is in the tabernacles of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. Verse 16, and the right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. I shall not die but live, declare the works of the Lord. The Lord had chastened me sore, but he had not given me over unto death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go into them and I will praise the Lord. This gate of the Lord into which the righteous shall enter. Think of Psalms 24 alongside that one. I praise thee for thou hast heard me and art become again. My salvation or Yeshua is in the text. Amen. Which the very next verse you recognize. In fact, Jesus quoted this verse for himself. Knowing that they knew that his name was there. Verse 22, the stone which the builders refused or rejected, is become the headstone of the corner. Amen. Praise God. And then, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And then we find save now. Verse 25, I beseech thee, O Lord, O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. In the Hebrew text is the very word that we find them singing and quoting on the triumphal entry. Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us, O Lord, save us, O King. Praise God. 
And then verse 26, they went on and sang this, Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. God is the Lord which has showed us light Bind the sacrifice with cords even to the horns of the altar. Thou art my God, I will praise thee. Thou art my God, I will exalt thee. Give thanks unto the Lord for he is good and his mercy endureth forever. Now if that was not enough, they tacked on this day one more chorus that was again written to be sung But it was written by Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 12. And they sang this in in finale, if we could say that. As they stood around and gathered around that altar of sacrifice. The lamb tied to the, the horns of the altar. The water ready to be poured out. And they finalized their singing and procession with this passage. In that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee. Though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away and thou comfortest me. Behold, 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 Yeshua. Behold, Yeshua. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord, Jehovah, is my strength and my song. He is my Yeshua. Therefore, with joy shall you draw waters out of the wells of Yeshua. And in that day ye shall say, praise the Lord. Call upon his name. Declare his doings among the people. Make mention that his name is exalted. Sing unto the Lord, for he hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, thou inhabitants of Zion. For great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. And as they finish singing... Silence would come over the crowd as those priests would pour the water out, hoping to hear the sound of that water falling upon that lamb that was tied to the horns of that altar. And in that silence, Jesus could not contain himself. And he stood. And he just didn't cry out. The word in that's used here by John is that he screamed at the top of his lungs as loud as he could. And he said, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. For he that believeth on me, as the Scripture has said, When he said, as the scripture has said, he was making direct reference to what they had just sang. That with joy you shall draw waters from the wells of Yeshua. As the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers. Rivers of living water. Amen. Oh, friend. 
You talk about a proclamation. You talk about a revelation to the city of Jerusalem of who he was. There was no doubt in their minds who he was. And his name was the name. Amen. And it was from him that waters flow. Amen. Oh, if you're thirsty today, you can drink from the waters of salvation. Thank you, Jesus. We were asked to teach a leadership conference in an Islamic nation. And uh, it was... It was an area, an ancient city. Our missionaries had just, a team of missionaries had been there only two years, trying to get a foothold. They had not had one convert as of yet. They had taught Bible studies. God had granted them favor. There was a legal Protestant church in that city. The pastor was one of three legal pastors in the entire nation. And he somehow God just granted our missionary team favor with this man. He opened their, his doors to them, allowed them to have services in his building, use uh, one section as a youth center to reach out. And so together they organized an interdenominational uh, leadership conference. And I was asked to come and speak and do this conference. And so... I knew, you know, kind of the background. They told me it was interfaith thing or interdenomination. There'd be pastors from actually several countries and from different uh, Christian backgrounds. And uh, so the Lord began to deal with me very strongly about not just teaching leadership, but also including some sessions on the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so, you know, I got to the country a couple days early and they introduced me to my translator. My translator was a Muslim. That kind of threw me for a loop, Brother Yaden. I mean, I knew it was going to be interdenominational, you know, Christian, but Muslim? In that country, for what I was about to say, I could get my head cut off. I was a little nervous. But I got to sit down with him, and I, I've talked to Muslims various times, and so I always go to the Quran and begin to start there, and I began to do that with him when I had opportunity. And he got, I, I was surprised, he got all excited when I began to talk to him about what the Quran says about Jesus. And he got all excited, he said, you know, my grandfather used to tell me this. And, uh, and so I, I felt a little better, but still... He was a fabulous translator. And, uh, you know, we were just teaching leadership. And, and then in the afternoons, I began on this session, first afternoon, after the morning sessions on the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I started teaching on some of this, Jesus' self-revelation to the city of Jerusalem. And as we got into it, I didn't get very far. 
only about 30, 35 minutes into it and the Holy Ghost fell in the place. I mean in a visible move of His Spirit as people began to respond. And, and I, it, it was a strange thing in such a mixed crowd of backgrounds. The only Pentecostals that I knew of were our own missionaries. And so... As, as that began to move in, my translator, he literally froze. He quit. I was afraid to look at him. I didn't know what he was doing. But I kind of finally, you know, after a minute or so of just silence and no, nothing as the Spirit of God just moved, people were responding and, and worshiping. And, and finally I turned him, I, he was shaking as the Spirit of God was in that place. And I put my hand on his shoulder, and I said, are, are you okay? He said, yeah. I said, it's just the Spirit of God, but, and can we proceed? He said, okay. We got into it about 15 to 20 minutes further, and I mean it was like a bomb. The Holy Ghost fell. The first thing that happened was the, the denominal pastor's wife in that Protestant church, very stoic people, but his wife fell back in her seat speaking in tongues. And the whole place exploded. Brother Blackshear, some of his key men began to fall out in the floor as the Spirit of God, nobody was blowing on them or touching them. It was just the hand of God sweeping across that room. People began to receive healings and miracles and several received the Holy Ghost. And here was this translator watching all this, shaking again under the power of God and he couldn't control himself. Tears began to come to his eyes and my wife quickly ran up to him and said, you know, you, this is just the presence of Almighty God, you know, and you can just express yourself however you feel. And he said, ma'am, you don't understand. In my culture, men don't cry. But he couldn't stop. He couldn't stop. And as he watched what was going on, I mean, there, it was a powerful move of God. Several receiving the Holy Ghost. And... And then the next day, the same thing happened. Same thing happened in that afternoon session. As I began to teach on the revelation of Jesus Christ and the identity of who he was through his own speaking and through his own words. I don't know, I think I might have got to 8th chapter John when he's talking about the I am. And the whole place, you know what happened. This time... When he froze, I turned to look at him. He grabbed me by both arms, and he shook me. He said, I see it. I see it. Jesus is God. This is the message that we've got to declare to my people and to the whole world. Hallelujah. Now, for a Muslim to say that, friend, he had a revelation right there in the midst of it as he was reading the scriptures in his own language. And friend, I tried to go a little farther and the whole place exploded and at the end, he got the Holy Ghost. <laughs> Hallelujah. I'm here to tell you, they need to see Jesus. They need to see Jesus. 
They need to know him. If they can see him, oh, the light turns on. Praise God. And when he got, he talked in tongues for, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, and all of a sudden he, he, he just, his eye, he just stopped, his eyes popped wide open. He looked straight at me and said, What was that? He said, That wasn't Arabic, that was English. What was that? I said, This is that. <laughs> this is that that was spoken. This is that that happened on the day of Pentecost. Praise God. Oh, I'm here to tell you, it's for everybody. It's for me. It's for you. It's for your children. Oh, Peter said it this way. It's for all that are far off. What was Peter preaching on that day of Pentecost that brought such conviction? Just read it in verse 36. He said, this same Jesus that you crucified, who God has raised up, he has made both Lord and Messiah. Amen. Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? I'm here to tell you, it's still the same. And it works among Muslims. It works among, among every background. Amen. We've seen Hindus. We've seen Buddhists. It doesn't matter when they see Jesus. When they see Jesus, their heart cannot deny it. And they fall at his feet like Thomas fell at his feet. My Lord and my God. Hallelujah. It eradicates all doubt. No, he's not the second person. Amen. He's not second to anything. He is the first and the last. He is the beginning and the end. Praise God. Oh, Jesus. Do you know him? Do you know him? I'm so glad that we know him by name. And there is no other name. He is the image of the invisible God. Oh, the devil has tried to blind the minds of them that believe not, lest they should see the light of this glorious gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. The very glory of God shining in his face. But friend, you have been given, you have been given an understanding just like he gave his disciples in his closing day on earth when he opened their understanding to all the law, to the prophets, what they had spoke about him. Friend, he's still the same. This world needs to know him. I dare say they don't. I have a book that thick by a theologian and he says all the names of God. And he goes from Old Testament to New Testament. And he thinks he's got all the names of God in there. But you know what? I can't find anywhere in those pages, out of the hundreds of titles and declarations he searched out in the Scripture, I cannot find that he ever said Jesus is the name of God. They don't understand it. Their minds are blinded. 
but you have been given light. And I can tell you that light will dispel the darkness. It will dispel the darkness. This world needs to know him. We need to proclaim in this hour. Let's stand to our feet. Praise God. Praise God. Oh, it doesn't matter how deep in sin, how plagued they are, maybe full of evil spirits like I was. I can tell you that man full of 2,000 deepens demons on the shores of of Galilee when he saw the Savior step on that seashore no devil could withhold him from bowing at the feet of his Savior. Amen. He recognized him. Before a word was spoken he ran to his feet. There's nothing that can keep you. Nothing that can hinder you. Let's come around the front. Oh he's here today. He's here today. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Your name, oh Lord, your name is the only name that we need to know. For in you, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily, and we are complete in you. Oh, Jesus, your name that washes away sin, your name by whom the Holy Ghost fills our hearts, your name that gives us access into your throne room, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Hallelujah. Jesus.